right, good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone here today. We are, we are very blessed. I want to uh, invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3. Just a reminder, we've got um, Bibles in the pews there. I am preaching out of the New American Standard Bible, so if you do want to follow along, there's one of those in there. It's pretty close to your NIV and this morning we're going to be finishing up our study of this great second epistle as we've been working our way through this final section here in verses 11 to 18. So let's read these verses together once again and get re-familiar with them. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Peter writes, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and, and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 Now, throughout this third and, and final chapter, Peter's been talking about the Lord's return, the day of God, the day of the Lord. We noted last week that the day of God, however, found in verse 12, and the day of the Lord, found in verse 10, speak about two very different events. For example, those who love the Lord are described in verse 12 as those looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And Peter describes it to us at the end of verse 13 as new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Those who love Christ and long for His appearing are looking for that day, the day of God. However, those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 8 through 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now that day, that day is called the day of the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It will come, says Peter, like a thief. 
and the earth and all its works will be burned up. So as followers of Christ, we don't long for that day, the day of the Lord. That's a term of final judgment, destruction, and damnation. We're not longing for that. We're not anticipating that. What we long for is what comes after, namely the day of God, the day of eternity described in verse 18 in which righteousness dwells. So you'll see in the back of your bulletin, I've broken our text up into three parts as Peter gives us essentially three ways to be diligent in the light of the Lord's return. We covered point number one last week, so just by way of review, I'm going to hit on some of the main points to get us caught up with the flow of the text. In point number one, Peter tells us, in light of the Lord's return, we need to be diligent to live godly lives. And he gives us a number of components of what that should look like practically in verses 11 to 14. Notice again how verse 11 begins. Peter says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Now this phrase, since all these things are to be destroyed, that takes us all the way back to verse 10 and the day of the Lord. So since we know all that's going to happen in, in this way, which will usher in the eternal state of glory, the day of God, what sort of people ought we to be? In other words, if Jesus is coming back to take you to be with him in glory, if he has delivered you from judgment and is going to usher you into the great day of God, then as a believer, you ought to live in light of that, right? And that's what Peter's saying here. And so he asks in verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness? And that's the arena in which he's speaking to. Holy conduct refers to the way I live outwardly, while godliness refers more to the inner motives of the heart. Now, what does that actually mean? What are the attitudes or practices of godly living and holy conduct in a practical sense? Well, Peter answers those questions for us in verses 12 to 18. Now, last time I told you, first of all, it it includes expectation. Expectation. Verse 12 says, we ought to be people who are, quote, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And then notice the shift in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now the key phrase in this section is that term looking for, and we see it in both verses. In verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse 13, he says we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. And as redeemed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ headed for eternal glory to be with him, we ought to be people who are living with an expectancy of his return, right? Pretty obvious. We see it commanded, right, in verse 12. We should be people who are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter says we should be people who are described as eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. And we covered that in detail last week. The next component 
of our godliness speaks to our internal peace. Our internal peace. Please notice verse 14. Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And we'll stop right there for a moment. And what's he mean, since you look for these things? What are, what are these things that he is talking about? Well, again, for believers, we are looking for the day of God in verse 12. The promise of new heavens and a new earth in verse 13. The glorious kingdom awaiting us in the presence of God. He says, since we look for those things, it requires us to do something. To be diligent. And that's another way of saying of making every effort. As we saw back in chapter 1, verse and it stresses our responsibility of making every effort to be found by him in peace and please notice beloved we will all be found by him (laughs) okay in fact he's been aware of you all along it reminds us that there will be nothing hidden on that day you might have something hidden in your life now that you think you might be hiding from your spouse or from a friend or a loved one but God sees it all. Everything will be brought to light when the day of God comes. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, that when the Lord comes, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He will expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. Therefore, beloved, since you look for your Lord's return, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. Peace. But what does he mean by that? Peace. What does he mean that when he comes, we should be found by him in peace? What kind of peace is this speaking to? Well, in this context, peace primarily refers to a true peace of mind. Who wants some true peace of mind? (laughs) Yeah. This is a true peace of mind that accompanies a strong and confident faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A faith that is sure that will not be shaken over the next situation that happens in your life. Certainly a peace that I have been reconciled to God, yes, but also that I'm not afraid to see my master face to face when I am found by him. That's, that's a peace that this speaks to. It's probably summed up best by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, where again, he's in prison when he's writing the letter to the church in Philippi. And he reminds them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, here it is, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I believe that's the kind of peace that Peter is talking about here, the kind of peace that makes us free from fear and anxiety or or doubt of my salvation. It's the kind of peace that isn't anxious for Christ to come, for fear that he'll find me ensnared in my sinfulness and shame. That kind of peace that is free from worry about the future. That kind of peace that knows no fear regarding the day of the Lord because I enjoy the peace of God. And this, says the Apostle Paul, is the peace that surpasses 
all human understanding, for it is only found in Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week that one of the real challenges of Christian living is to live in this fallen, sin-filled world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, enduring all the pains and hardships that are a result of the fall of man and his sin, and yet in, in the midst of all this chaos and with all the madness that is going on outside these doors, that you are still able to experience the peace of God. That, you, that you're not living in such a way that this world and the fallen world system and the effects of sin are robbing your peace. Please don't say that, beloved. Don't allow the enemy to rob you of the peace of God. Do you trust in an all-knowing and sovereign God who's working everything out for His glory? Do you have a real authentic peace with God knowing that all is well between you and Him? That as far as, as the east is from the west, so far has He removed all our transgressions from us, as I read this morning. And that His purpose for you will unfold perfectly as He has revealed in the Scriptures. That, beloved, is the peace of assurance. That, beloved, is the peace of security. That, says Paul in Philippians 4, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself said in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, says Peter, as you are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. In peace. And then we looked at another component of godly living, and we'll call that purification. And the peace that Peter's talking about is described further for us at the end of verse 14, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, I believe this is in contrast to the false teachers who Peter described back in chapter 2 and verse 13 when he called them stains and blemishes. They're like spots and scabs, he says. Their conduct was seen as like a, a filthy stain on a, a nice uh, white satin sheet. Or a garment, but in contrast to being stains and blemishes, you, beloved, should be spotless and blameless. Spotless and blameless. These two terms speak of both our character and reputation. For example, being spotless speaks to who I really am. It's my character and motives. It's the um, inner man. While being blameless is more about the outer man, my conduct and my reputation. Am I above reproach? Talked about how we can be spotless and still blameless, that our stain of our past sin is so filthy that though we are forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood has covered us and His grace is bring us to glory, we still have that spot, that stain from our old life that those who know us know Nick did that. Nick did that. That guy over there did that and so those things can can follow us so those don't have to determine on our salvation but the lord does want to look and find for us as pure 
in all respects, blameless in reputation, spotless in our character. This is what it means to live a godly life, beloved. Now before we move on, I do want to read that wonderful section of Scripture back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, if you um, want to just turn a few pages. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, because here Peter talks about living as obedient children. And we touched on just a section of it. I do want to read the whole thing this week. It's a wonderful text. Notice verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. So, if we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter says we ought to be the sort of people who have the peace of assurance because of His grace. We are to be diligent to be found by Him, spotless and blameless. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's not a suggestion, beloved. It's our duty. So Peter says, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. All right, so that was point number one. In light of the Lord's return, we must be diligent to live godly lives. Let's go now to point number two that we just introduced last week. We must also be diligent in winning the lost. We must also be diligent about winning the lost. Or in other words, we are to be characterized by our evangelism. While we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, Peter says in verse 15, we are also to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Salvation. In other words, as we are anticipating the Lord's return, we should be using our time, gifts, and talents that we have for purposes of salvation. Now this verse ties into what Peter said back in verse 9. You'll recall all the way back in verse 4, the mockers were saying, where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues on just as it was from the beginning of creation. You said the Lord was coming back. That was a long time ago. Where is He? And the mockers were mocking. And in verse 9, Peter's response is the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is actually patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so here we see this time that we're right in is for purposes of salvation. God's perceived slowness is in fact His long-suffering, His patience, his mercy and His grace, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he's tarrying, he's tarrying, waiting and waiting until every last one of his children turns from their sins and puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is saying in verse 15 is in this time of God's patience, recognizing that the patience of the Lord is for purposes of salvation, that while we're looking for and hastening the Lord's return, that we be diligent not only to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, but that we're also to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul really articulated what should be the passionate heartbeat of every believer waiting for the Lord's return. He said in verse 18, God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Isn't that amazing? And then notice the love of Christ heard in the words of the Apostle Paul here. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that is my plea today. We beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sins with a repentant heart and turn and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just ask you something. Have you ever begged on behalf of Christ for someone to be reconciled to God? From the time that Paul was saved until his death, he used his time, gifts, and talents for purposes of salvation. See, when I think about the day of God, which is a blessing for me, I also have to think about the day of the Lord, which is a curse for those who are around me. There's a graphic illustration of this same attitude that comes from the heart of the Apostle John. And I shared this last week, but it really captures the purpose of this passage. It comes from the book of Revelation and chapter 10. And if you know the order of this book, you know that by chapter 10, there's a a slight pause in these catastrophic judgments that are being poured out upon the earth in the latter times. And suddenly you get this strange scene where John, who's been writing the, um, down the seven seal judgments, and then he's at the six trumpet judgments. And then before the seventh um, trumpet is sounded, in chapters 10 and 11, there's a pause. And you get these incredible stories of how God is still going to be saving his people in the midst of all the catastrophic judgment that's coming in the last times. But in chapter 10, we see an angel, and he brings to John this, this little book. And he said to John, and, and of course this is metaphorically, but it, it's very clear what it's saying. He, he said to John in verse 9 to take this little book and, and eat it. In verse 10, John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it and in my mouth it was sweet as honey though my stomach was made bitter. Now what on earth does all that mean? Well, the little book has been written in it the final judgments of the, of the earth. That's what the scroll and, and the seals are all about. 
These are about the judgment. So when John eats the book or eats the scroll, it reveals to him how it will all end. And to him, it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. On the one hand, for John, it's sweet as honey because it ushers in the day of God and eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, it's bitter in his stomach because it also means the damnation for the unbelieving world. And so the true Christian who is waiting in the time of God's mercy sees that the patience of God is opportunity for them to extend themselves to sinners as a minister of reconciliation. As ambassadors of Christ, we must be diligent to win the loss as though God were making an appeal through us as we beg those around us on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. With what attitudes then? Do we wait for the day of God as eternal glory? with anticipation, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, with the peace of God because of the blessed assurance we have in Christ, in purification, living godly lives, both in character and reputation, and in proclamation, making sure that the patience of God um, is, is, that lingers is really our zeal that lead men to salvation as he carries us through this time of his patience. The next component we need to possess is discernment. And we, we, all, we all need discernment. Notice verse 15, and I'm going to read down to verse uh, 17 so we can get the full context of this passage. Because as you'll see, this, this is quite a mouthful. Sometimes this happens in the Greek where it's just one run-on sentence and we've got to read it into English and you're going, what did he just say? But let's give this a whirl. Verse 15, not only are we to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, but just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. i got to take a drink over that one. <laughs> now, I know on first reading, I lost you somewhere along the way there. Well, let's see if I can uh, find your way back because this is an important text. Um, Let's look at right there in the middle of verse 15. Peter introduces a, a whole new idea to us here, really. See where it says, just as. I think you could really start just a, a new sentence there. As Peter really launches off to discuss something about Paul and Paul's warning about false teachers. And then in verse 17, he says, Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. So we understand then that this, this section here is a call for discernment. A call for discernment. He's saying, as you live in anticipation of the coming of the day of God, you've got to realize that there are going to be a lot of people coming along who are going to try to take your eyes off of the prize, which is Christ. And you need to have discernment so that you are not carried away by their error and fall from your place of stability. That's the general flow of this passage. Now let's look at kind of each little section of it. Notice verse 15, Peter calls Paul our beloved brother. Our beloved brother. Here we see him using really gracious terminology to describe Paul. 
Both of them are apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know a little bit of their history, this is uh, really saying a lot. Um, speaking of their history, you might recall from Acts chapter 15, they were both present at that very pivotal meeting referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And if you read Acts 15, if you want to mark it in your notes, you'll see that not only was Peter and Paul there, but you get the sense that most, if not all, of the early apostles were there, as well as the elders of the main church there in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, who was one of the main leaders, was also there in attendance. And so also were a group of false teachers called the Judaizers. Now, they had all come together in order to consider an extremely important matter, really a core gospel issue, concerning the doctrine of salvation by works. Salvation by works of the law. Now, you can read about the decision made by the Jerusalem Council right there in Acts 15, but I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 2 because there we can actually read about the conflict that happened between these two great pillars of faith, Peter and Paul. Incredibly interesting. Galatians chapter 2, and we're just going to touch on this briefly, but I do want to go here because this issue actually connects another part of our text as well. But let's just focus on this first section here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Peter's in Antioch. Antioch is one of the first predominantly um, Gentile churches. These were essentially pagan nations being Christianized. And we learn that Peter had done something really terrible uh, in chapter 2 here. He had, in appearance, essentially appeared to have supported these Judaizers, these false teachers, who said things like, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you Gentiles cannot be saved. You'll read about that in Acts 15. I mean, can you imagine if we said, hey, you'd like to join our church? All you men, I've got to go out back and go see the doctor. I mean, you know, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Everyone would have left. And essentially, at least the men. And, you know, what happened was Peter, who had no issue sitting and eating with all these Gentiles for a decent amount of time, all of a sudden stops associating with them once this group of Judaizers showed up. They said, oh, James sent us. And, and so they gave the appearance that they were working under the authority of James and Peter wanted to be good with James. And, and so you get the idea that kind of he, he um, moved in there and, and moved his seat over to go sit with these legalistic hypocrites. And he starts to ignore the Gentile brothers and sisters at the church because their dietary laws, well, they weren't up to their standards. And this might seem like one of your common church spats where, you know, I'm moving my seat and I'm not sitting near you anymore. But Peter was affirming the very dietary restrictions he knew that God had abolished and therefore he was going against the gospel of grace and exchanging it for a gospel of works, at least lending his support to these Judaizers. And in effect, he was pulling the believers that were in Antioch back into legalism. And so let's look at the story play out. That's a little bit of the background. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul says, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow. <laughs> for prior to the coming of certain men from James, that's the Judaizers, 
he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And guess what? The rest of the Jews joined in with the hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. You see how filth just spreads and permeates amongst the whole congregation when we start acting like this and going in a little clicks? But, Paul says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about, look at this, the truth of the gospel, wow. I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, did you notice how Paul addresses this as an issue of not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel? This is, I mean, this is, this is as serious as it gets, folks. And by withdrawing from meals with the Gentiles, Peter and Barnabas effectively returned to life under the law and discredited the gospel's promise of freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was bringing them back under that heavy yoke that was impossible for the people to carry. Now remember, Peter was like the primary spokesman of the early church, and no doubt he was the kind of man who certainly didn't relish the fact that he was being opposed by Paul publicly. I mean, I could, that's not fun for anybody. I can only imagine Peter. But Paul had discernment. Paul had discernment to know this wasn't a secondary issue. This needed to be addressed head on. You're messing with the gospel. And Paul had discernment to do so. And at the same time, doesn't this just give us all hope? Right? that we can get something so terribly wrong as Peter did in Antioch, and number one, still be an apostle, and number two, still be a close brother with Paul. Because isn't this wonderful? In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, some 20 years after this whole thing happened, Peter can still call Paul our beloved brother, though. So what happened in Antioch is done. It's over. That was long ago. See, when truth is the standard and man humbles himself under the authority of God's word and they can deal with their sin as sin and, and not take it personally, that means there's hope for all of us. Because we're not always going to get it right the first time. <laughs> so Peter says in verse 15, just as our beloved Brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Now this is really interesting. Peter says to his audience that Paul, according to the wisdom that was given to him, also wrote to, to you guys. Now we have no idea what letter or epistle this might have been. Peter's audience is described to us in 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who res reside as aliens scattered throughout the provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So there were a number of churches scattered throughout this region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It could have been the letter to the Galatians, okay? Province of Galatia is mentioned there. There were uh, quite a few churches a part of that area. Uh, it's also close enough it could have been referring to the letter to the Ephesians or even the Colossians. 
It could have been First or Second Thessalonians, one of the early letters. We, we really don't know. There's a lot of ink spilt on this that you don't know. <laughs> he, if Peter wanted us to know, he would have said. <laughs> he doesn't tell us. He's simply saying, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him from God, wrote to you guys. And then he adds in verse 16, as also in all of his letters. So I would take it that he is simply referring to the writings of Paul. But, but what's his point? Well, he's saying that Paul also wrote to you about the coming of the day of God and the glories to come. First and second Thessalonians, for example, are the earliest writings of Paul. And they deal extensively with prophecy relating to the coming of the Lord. But what's his point? I think Peter is leaning on Paul here for a little support. It's kind of like he's citing Paul and he's saying, everything that I've said to you, Paul's confirmed to you as well. All right? But Peter's not done here. He's going to go deeper into this. Notice the rest of verse 16. In which are some things hard to understand. So Peter acknowledges there are some things that Paul writes about that can be hard to understand. And, and please note, beloved, he says some things are hard to understand. Not impossible. Not impossible. Because, you know, there's some people that are going to go, oh, man, we really can't know what, the, what they meant. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, secret wisdom and... we. We really, that's no, that's not what he's saying here. He doesn't say it's impossible to understand. He just recognizes that some of his teaching is more complex than others. I mean, I'm still working through the book of Romans. I can't wait to preach through it someday, but the depths to which these spiritual truths are, are incredible. And so Peter's right. Think of some of the topics Paul covers. He writes about the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, what will happen to our soul when we die. He talks about the tribulation. The coming of the man of lawlessness, the return of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and the final glories of eternity. And some of these are complex issues, and they open the door for what Peter writes next. Notice what he says in verse 16. He writes, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And I'll tell you something. The amount of stuff that's written regarding eschatology is unbelievable. I mean, everyone and their brother has either written a book or five books, made a movie about the end times, and people just eat it up. You know, who's the Antichrist? You know, where's the beast? Uh, look at my chart. Jesus is coming back uh, July 23rd, uh, 2023, right around 12 o'clock. I calculated it all. And this stuff just comes out all the time. And of course, for the untaught and the unstable, it can deceive them, particularly when it's perpetrated by dishonest false teachers. Now, they don't just do this with prophecy either. He says the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They do it with the whole Bible. All right. The word untaught means they essentially lack information, while unstable speaks about someone who uh, wavers in their faith. And then Peter uses a very strong word. He says, which the untaught and unstable distort. The word distort actually refers to someone's limbs being stretched out and twisted by um, a torture device. And these false teachers, as it were, take the truth of God's word, they put it on a rack, and they start to wrench on it and wrench on it as it's twisting and contorting as they torture God's truth. They're charlatans who are con artists 
and they like to twist and stretch, especially prophetic scriptures, in order to manipulate and confuse the untaught of the truth. And they don't just do it with prophecy, it says they do it with the rest of the scriptures also. Now you remember, don't you, that the reason the false teachers deny the day of the Lord isn't because they came across or could defend it by some scripture or some new revelation of prophetic truth. No, it wasn't because of that. Back in verse 3, we saw the false teacher's true motive in this chapter. It's because they're following after their own lusts. That's their true motive. And so they want an eschatology that fits their immorality. And therefore, they deny any future judgment of Christ or return of the day of the Lord. Now, as a footnote, notice in verse 16, he says, the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. That, beloved, is actually the most clear-cut statement on the pages of scripture that affirm the writings of Paul as scripture, as the word of God. I don't know how many of you are aware of it, but essentially ever since Paul became an apostle, commissioned, by the way, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Ever since day one, people have dealt as an apostle, number one, and two, as an inspired writer of Scripture. Okay? And whether it's uh, movements like the Jewish Roots Movement today um, or some liberal seminary, people like to deny Paul's writing as Scripture. They'll say things like, oh, only Paul talked about this. Uh, you know, Jesus never said that. You know, this is like the whole council word of God. Hello? But these are the kind of things that they like to do. But notice, Peter's testimony is that Paul writes scripture. And the false teachers distort it all, notice, to their own destruction. To their own destruction. If you go back to the second chapter in verse 1 for a moment, it says there in the middle of the verse that these false teachers among you will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. See a theme? Chapter 3, verse 7. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Jude, verse 10, it says, they'll be destroyed like unreasoning animals. Why do I bring this up? Listen carefully. Peter says those who distort the teachings of Paul will be led to eternal destruction. Okay? Consider this then. If what Peter says is true, then the writings of Paul must be Scripture. Because you don't. if you distort it, it will lead you to eternal destruction. It must be Scripture if any distortion of it leads to eternal destruction. Sounds a lot like Revelation 22, 18 through 19. If anyone adds to this book, God will add to him the plagues which are written in it. Anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city. All right, let's to get to the sum of this whole thing. We need to get into verse 17, which brings us to our final point. As we answer the question from verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter says, lastly, we must be diligent to grow spiritually. We must be diligent 
to grow spiritually. More accurately, we must be diligent to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 17. Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what? Knowing that there will be false teachers who are going to come and twist and distort the Scriptures, and who therefore will lead people to their own damnation, since you know this beforehand, Peter says, be on your guard. Be on your guard against false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Be on guard for what? What are we guarding against? Peter tells us. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. And that's just another title for the false teachers. The term means lawless, unrestrained, and licentiousness. He says, don't be carried away. It's the same word used in Galatians 2.13 that I just read where it says Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. Don't be carried away by error. Listen, anytime you hang around or listen to false teachers who distort the scriptures, you run the risk of being led astray. You can't sit in a church where someone's twisting and distorting scriptures without running the risk of being led astray. Only truth sanctifies. Only truth brings about righteousness. You must be discerning of this. End of verse 17. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. What about that word? Steadfastness. It indicates firmness, like a firm footing that you can stand on. It's funny, the song that we just sang, I remember singing as a kid, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. <laughs> Peter's warning for his readers, be on alert and be on guard, speaks loudly to me. I can't tell you how many stories I have heard and read about of people who were raised in a solid Christian home only for later in life to be carried away by the lies of Satan. Or men who, in their early 20s, taught Sunday school only later in life to be carried away by the sway of the evil one. Droves of former pastors and elders and regular churchgoers have left the church. Being carried away by air of unprincipled men as they fall from their own steadfastness. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed. Take heed that he does not fall. Now be, be clear, Peter's not talking about losing your salvation. That's eternal. Jesus, as our good shepherd said in John 10, 4-5, when he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And of course, there's John 6, 37 through 39, where Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who has sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. That's what our Lord says. So he's not talking about losing your salvation here, but rather he means you'll lose your stability as you fall from your own steadfastness, your own steadiness. And what is that? What's your steadfastness? Well, doctrinal truth, convictions, confidence in God's unchanging and unshifting truths. So Peter says, look, you've been warned that false teachers are going to come with their deceptions. I've told you beforehand. So be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of these unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So you need to be diligent to grow in this area so you be prepared for when these situations come. Because let me tell you, it's not if they come, it's when they come. It's when they come. They may be two nice, young-looking men with ties on knocking on your front door saying, Hi, we love Jesus too. Can we come on in? All right, well, here we are. The final verse of 2 Peter. Kind of snuck up on me here, i got to admit. Notice how Peter closes this incredible epistle. He ends verse 18 with both some final instructions and a praise. First, our instruction. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying, while you're looking for and hastening the coming of the day, be growing towards that. Paul said in Ephesians 4, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. And so here Peter just reminds us that since we're going to be spending our eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of him. And the word here for grow means to advance or to increase in the sphere of. And what's the fear? Here it's grace. We are to grow in grace through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we gain that knowledge? Coming to know Him better through the study of His Word, through intimate fellowship with Him. Under the, under the solid biblical teaching of pastors and ministers and being discipled. And all this means is a deeper and deeper knowledge of Christ in prison while Paul was awaiting his execution, he said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul seeked to know him still more and more. Grace is the fear of our growth. Knowledge is the component of that growth. In the fear, sphere of grace where God forgives our sins, overlooks our weaknesses, we feed on the word of God and have communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby grow in the knowledge of Him. Will you also please note that He is both Lord and Savior? If I'm going to be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and in light of my eternal glory, I want to spend my time 
pursuing a, a deeper understanding of the fullness of the person of Christ, both in his saving work as well as his lordship, so that my heart is continually growing and overflowing in my reverence and love for Christ. And so I ask you, beloved, in light of what Christ has done in your life, and with the time that you have left on this earth, are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I hope that you are. Peter closes this final chapter of this final epistle with a word of praise. He says, To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 It's a call for adoration and for worship. Peter says, Give Him all of the glory both now and into the day of eternity. Paul says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We are to live for His glory. We are to be for the praise of His glory. Throughout the Old Testament, God says over and over, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And here the Holy Spirit is saying, give all of the glory to Christ. But what does that tell us? It affirms the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that He is in fact God. John 5.23, the Lord makes a great statement. It's so important to know and recognize this. Jesus talking about how the Father has given all judgment to the Son because of the love that He has for the Son. And in verse 23, Jesus says, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Peter began this epistle with affirmation that the Lord Jesus Christ was God. He affirmed His deity and now He ends the book with the same. We therefore should conclude that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Both deity and both all are worthy of our praise. How then, beloved, should we live? How do I live in light of living for the day of eternity in the presence of Christ on a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? How do I live in light of that in this life now? What sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter answered his own question. We shall live with anticipation, looking for and hastening the day of God, looking for new heavens and a new earth. We should be those that have an eternal peace because you're assured that the day of the Lord will not pass you, the day of God will not pass you by. You should live in purification, both spotless and blameless. You should live in evangelization, realizing that God's patience is for purposes of salvation. You need to live with discernment, being on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, being diligent to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then lastly, you need to live with an attitude of continual praise on your heart for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, being an instrument of His praise to the glory of God who has planned the day of eternity for you, the beloved of God. This is how we ought to live in light of our glorious future. Jesus said He's coming back. Are you ready to go to be with Him?
I pray this series has blessed you. Um, I have definitely grown myself in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in need of prayers this morning, um, after our worship, we would be happy to pray with you for it here. Will you please stand and we sing the worship song? Thank you. <laughs> 